California, where we spent uh, 20 years ministering. So this uh, truly still feels in many ways like home, although uh, we love Texas, been there two years, and uh, I bring you very, very warm greetings from the uh, Dallas church. And uh, we're thrilled that so many of you were able to join us in San Antonio and uh, just continue to hear tremendous things about what God is doing through so many. We, uh, we love the Marichis. I knew them when they were still the Gansers. That's how long we've known the Marichis. You know, yeah, I guess so. You know, some reason you have to keep changing your name. I don't want to go there this morning, but, uh, but uh, what a fabulous couple you have. And, you know, I, I just have to say this. I hope you appreciate what you have. Because uh, they truly are a couple that, uh, that uh, I, I can say this, probably the greatest compliment I can pay them is that if Connie and I were not in the ministry full time, we would love to be in their ministry. And uh, that's quite a compliment, so God bless you guys. You know, uh, we, uh, we are really having a drought in Texas. I don't know, are you guys having a drought on the West Coast too? We were really hoping Isaac would slam us instead of Louisiana, but uh, it's been really dry in Texas, and you're probably wondering, well, how dry has it been, Mark, in Texas? Well, it's, it's been so dry that it's actually starting to affect denominational doctrine in the Dallas area, and we are a very religious city. But the drought has been so severe that, that even doctrine and denominations are starting to be affected. You say, what do you mean? Well, it's, it's true. Shockingly, in Dallas, the Baptists are now starting to baptize by sprinkling. The Methodists, they're using wet wipes. The Presbyterians, it's even affected them. They're giving out rain checks. And I am told by those who know that the Catholics, in their masses, are now actually praying for the wine to be turned back into water. That's how dry it's been in Texas, guys. So pray for us, and we pray for you, and uh, it's just uh, a real treat for us to sharing this service with you this morning. Who do you say I am? Jesus asked on one occasion. I love talking about the real Jesus. And our text this morning is found in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. And it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I believe the question that Jesus put before his disciples on that very historic occasion is a question that really he puts to every single person here today. And that's the question, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? I hope you appreciate that it's an important question. According to Jesus, what I think about Him and how I respond to Him will determine my destiny for all eternity. You know, the world has always been fascinated by Jesus. And whether they receive Him as their Savior or not, the world is interested in this man and who he is and what he did. A good man or a God man? Perhaps that's the question. No one is more loved or hated, I put before you, than Jesus Christ. It seems that everyone has an opinion about him. Liberal thought is that Jesus was a good man, but he was not the God man. In other words, he was simply a good moral teacher, one of the best. Islam says that Jesus was merely a man and a prophet, but was inferior to Muhammad. Judaism, well, they're not quite even that kind. They say Jesus was just simply a false Messiah. Jehovah Witnesses, Well, they believe before Jesus lived on earth, he was actually Michael, the archangel. Jesus' enemies, they said simply in John 10, verse 33, you, a mere man, a mere man claimed to be God. But then in contrast, you have the apostle John who said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Apostle Paul said, Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Romans 9.5 And then the Apostle Thomas, as he put his hands in the nail marks and in the spear of his side, he says, my Lord and my God. I am just telling you that the world has a lot of opinions all over the place about who Jesus is. But what about Jesus? What did he say about himself? That might be insightful, since everyone seems to have an opinion about him. Jesus, I can tell you this, was not killed for his good deeds. 
are for his uh, creative parables. Rather, he was killed for claiming to be God. Several of the claims that Jesus made about himself is Jesus claimed to be eternal. Anybody here this morning making that claim about themselves? In John 8, he says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. He claims to be eternal. Jesus said that he was sinless. Now, some of you might be making that claim this morning about yourself, but unfortunately, your spouse backs us up. You're full of baloney. No one, no one could accuse Jesus and prove him guilty of any sin. So much so that he turns to his very enemies in John 8 and he says, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Try making that comment to those who hate you. I don't think you'll be met by the silence Jesus was. Jesus also claimed to forgive sin. He did it to the paralytic. He did it to others. And boy, when the teachers of the law who were sitting there heard that, they said to themselves, Who is this fellow who can forgive sins? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Yeah, that was the point. And then Jesus also claimed that he was, get this, equal with God. God the Father. In John 10, in verse 30, he simply said, I and the Father are one. Doesn't get much clearer than that. And then perhaps the boldest of all claims about himself was, in John 14:6 when Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me or even Oprah would have a trouble with that claim and yet Jesus made some rather audacious claims as you can see about himself. Well, what about you? Who do you say he is? Kenneth Scott Loretteer, a respected historian, very respected Christian historian, said this, and listen to this sentence. He says, as the centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that measured by his effect on history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on this planet. End quote. Now that's from a very respected historian. And then uh, a man who knew something about world domination and conquering, of all people, Napoleon Bonaparte had a great quote about, of all people, Jesus, one of my favorites. Listen to what Napoleon said when confronted with who Jesus was. He says, I know men, 
And I tell you that Jesus Christ is not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires. And the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist with Jesus. There is between Christianity and what other, whatever other religions, the distance of infinity. Everything, he says, in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overalls me. His will confronts me. Between him and whoever else is in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. His ideas, his sentiments, the truth which he announces, his manner of convincing, are not explained either by human organization or by the nature of things. Napoleon concludes and says, I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the Gospels. Wow. I don't know who you say this morning Jesus is. I know we have a variety in this audience of people that may be visiting for the very first time or have begun their spiritual journey of studying God's Word, perhaps with someone here that's invited you. I know there are others in here, vast majority of you, that have literally laid down your life convinced that Jesus was who He claimed clearly to be. But I, uh, I thought I would spend the little bit of remaining time that I have left here this morning, looking at who the real Jesus is, and really approaching it from a focus on two essential things that as I age as a disciple, some 35 years now, that I am more and more convinced I need to imitate in Him and embrace about who He claimed to be. You know, one of the most fascinating and fresh studies that you might want to consider embarking on in the Scriptures is really a study where you read the Gospels and you observe what Jesus did. Not what He taught, but how He lived. What He did. And I will tell you that there are two things that I could clearly focus on here this morning that we shall briefly examine. And these two things will not only help us to understand who the real Jesus is, but it can have a profound impact on our destiny and the destiny of those who we will teach. The first of those two is simply that I want to put before you that the real Jesus was an unencumbered man. An unencumbered man. 
You know, there was no identity crisis in the life of Jesus. He knew who he was, unlike some of us. He knew where he had come from and why he was here, unlike some of us. And he knew where he was going, unlike some of us. You kind of catch a theme here? Listen, I want you to hear this, Californians. You flaky Californians, of which I was 20 years a part. When you are that in touch with yourself, that in touch with yourself, you travel light. Very light. Indeed. You say, well, Mark, I'm in touch with myself. Well, how light are you traveling through this world? What kind of footprint are you leaving? Let's talk about Jesus and how he lived in this area. Because it will tell us a great deal about who he was, the real Jesus. He entered the world... And God's visit to earth, do I need to remind us, took place in an animal shelter? With no attendants present, and nowhere to lay the newborn king, but in a feeding trough. I know we're not country bumpkins, but that would be like putting your baby in a dog bowl. Indeed, The event that divided history in our calendar had more animal witnesses than human ones. That's how he entered the world, rather on the light side. Let's talk about how he lived while he was here. Well, we only really need to look at Luke 9, 58, although we could look at many places. He says simply about his lifestyle, he says, Foxes have dens and birds have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And that wasn't because he couldn't afford the real estate in Manhattan Beach. I remembered when I... uh, Graduated from university, and I had accepted my first ministry position in Columbia, Missouri, to be a campus minister there at the University of Missouri. I had a Camaro, the car of choice for campus ministers. You know, really, really practical, two doors. Not really even a back seat. And I had literally been able, moving to a new city for the first time, outside of going away to college, to live, to put roots down. I could put every single possession and thing that I owned in that Camaro. And I could still see out the back window. And I had room for someone to sit in the passenger seat next to me, although I was alone. 
And I just use that constantly from time to time in my mind, now that I'm 56, and I think about what it took to move me to Dallas, Texas, and it was more than a Camaro. And I'm thinking, you know, what has changed? I was really content when I went to Columbia, Missouri. I, uh, I slept on a cot that was an army cot. That's what I slept on. I uh, didn't even have a kitchen table, but for our wedding present, the elders of the church got Connie and I a card table with four folding chairs, and that became our kitchen table. I can look back on those uh, three years in Columbia, Missouri. We didn't add many possessions while we were there. And I can say it was three of the most freeing and happiest years of our life. We traveled light. How about you? How are you traveling these days? And then I think about how even Jesus left the world. What did he have when he left, well, according to the Gospels, didn't really need to do a will. Because his executioners, they're at the foot of the cross, gambled for the only possessions he really had at that stage at the end of his life. And that was simply a tra- traveling bundle. A traveling bundle of a change of clothes. You see, the real Jesus, that's what we're talking about today. Let's get real. The real Jesus lived as an alien in this world. I'm doing a really detailed study right now on heaven. And I'm going to be in October preaching a three-part series to the Dallas church on heaven. church is really excited about it. Because they see how excited I've gotten from my study. And one of the things that I have certainly become convicted of is just that the early Christians, your early brothers and sisters in the faith, had a preoccupation with heaven. It's all they talked about. It's just all over the epistles. You can't help but read the Gospels and it just floods out if you put those glasses on. And yet I contrast that to how we live, we who are supposed to imitate and walk as Jesus walked, and I said, can I really view myself like those first century brothers and sisters as an alien in this world? Definition of an alien? You'll love this. Inconsistent with somebody or something. How much do you blend in in your neighborhood? How much do you stand out and work or do you drive what everybody else drives? Do you live where everybody else lives? Do you dress like everybody else? Definition of an alien? Outsider. And then the third one, you'll like this, strange. Strange. And, and yeah, maybe you got that one down, okay? One out of three ain't bad, right? Something, we got some momentum here. Let's build on it. Work with me here. Come on, church, work with me here. We got the strange down. Hebrews 11, verse 13 
says all these people, the great roll call of faith there, all these people in that great chapter were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Talking about Jesus to come. Hey, we live on the other side. Is it really that tough now to live as an alien? And they admitted, they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on this earth. I wonder if we could admit that. If the evidence is there to say, yeah, we're, we're aliens and strangers on this earth. Second, First Peter 2.11 says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers. See, there's that strange thing again. You know, it's there, right there. As aliens and being all strange, strangers in this world. To abstain from sinful desires which wage war. Guys, it's waging war against our souls. I'm so challenged by 1 Timothy 6, verses 8 and 9, when Paul tells Timothy, hey, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Oh, really? Do we just assume that? Or is that really a true statement? Food and clothing. I'm struck that it doesn't even say anything there about housing. People who want to get rich, California, fall into temptation and a trap into the many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Man, I'm just so challenged that the real Jesus was so consistent in how He entered the world how he lived in the world, and what he had when he exited and departed from the world. Guys, in California, you've had a front row seat to the Great Recession. Do you know in the first 18 months of this recession that we still find ourselves in, just the first 18 months, I am told that one-third of the entire wealth of the world was wiped away. Boy, you talk about the uncertainty of wealth. And my point is simply this. The cardinal rule is, when you're suffering, don't waste it. Don't waste it. My question for us is, what have we changed as a result of the lessons we are learning in the Great Recession? Is it, boy, I can't wait for the economy to turn around so I can have this and I can go buy that and I can regather what I've lost in my 401k? Or if I can just be so very bold, and I can because you can't fire me and I'm leaving this afternoon. But if I could just be so bold, I'm very convinced and concerned that some of us still don't get it. We haven't learned the lesson. We haven't understood the suffering. 
In Hebrews 12, in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by that great cloud of witnesses, disciples, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the real Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the unencumbered Jesus. My final point is that the real Jesus was a risk-taking Jesus. You know, i got to ask you, when was the last time you were really afraid because of your faith? The last time you, you took some kind of risk and just put it all out there, and you had fear. This week in Dallas, we've had disciples... And family groups on their own initiative go out on Friday night and share their faith all over the Dallas area. I can't believe the emails and the phone calls that we are getting from back home of what has happened and what has been impacted. Not only the great contacts that have been made, the open people that have been found, but more how it's impacted the Christians. We, we lead a region that when we got there was, uh, well, now it's 350 in size. Last Sunday, that region of 350 had almost 700 out to church. And that was without a special push, no printed invite. It's just that 85% of the people that uh, are in my region went to the summit in San Antonio. It was simply a five-hour drive. You know, kind of like the three-hour tour, a five-hour drive. It dates me a little. You got it. Okay. But uh, but I, I, I want to tell you, just simply, those who went, like many of you who went, dude, we, we came back, and I think the overriding theme was, we just want to make our life count. That's what I heard over and over again. I had more people come up to me and said, you know, I really have some stirring about going into the ministry. These were people that had three kids in their 50s, 40s, and I'm thinking, well, that's great. But boy, you talk about putting it out there. If you walk with Jesus, I put before you that at times you are going to be afraid. In Mark chapter 10, I'll just read one verse here, in verse 32. You know the verse, but let's read it again, looking at the real Jesus. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. If I've learned anything in my 35 years of being a disciple... It's that we stop growing when we stop taking risk. One of the first risks that I ever took 
was to go away to a weekend retreat at Ohio State University with people I didn't even know that had invited me to a Bible study group in my residence hall just days, weeks earlier. And I went to that weekend. I was nervous. I was a little intimidated, to say the least. I felt strange. I felt out of place. Five days later, I gave my life to Christ. Because I'd never been more impacted in a weekend by the Word of God, and I saw clearly where I was and where God expected me to be. I've never looked back on that as anything but the most incredible weekend of my life. I remember the first time I got up to preach my very first sermon. I was an intern, unpaid, because I was a full-time college student. And I was given the slot to to speak at Sunday school slot before the 10 o'clock service. It was a 9 o'clock slot. We had that slot back then. And my sermon was on David and Jonathan. The theme of the weekend was on David. And I remember that in my sophomore year of high school, someone who was very conscientious about his grades, me, took an F on a major assignment in front of my peers because I was unwilling to get up and do a speech in my English class. I figured I got a good enough grade, I'll take the B instead of the A for the semester because I'm not going to get up and make a fool out of myself. Dude, look at what's happening now. I mean, what has changed? But that's where I started. And that Sunday that I got that slot to speak, I literally, no exaggeration, Sunday morning, got up, went into the men's john on my residence floor and had the drive heaves. And and people probably thought I was out partying all night the night before. My stomach was just in knot because I was trying to figure out some way to get out of preaching that morning. I could share about my first time going out in my residence hall and sharing my faith. How I made a complete idiot out of myself. Invited a, uh, a, a polio-stricken college student to play softball on the intramural team. Because I was so into myself, I was so caught up when the door opened of that residence hall that I'd been door knocking, I didn't pay attention that he had hobbled up to the door. And I was so embarrassed afterwards. How would you like to start sharing your faith with that? Yet I brushed it off, embarrassed as I was, and that same weekend, same day I believe it was, met Steve Sandin, who now leads the Minneapolis church. Door knocked him in that same floor of that residence. It just shows what fear and overcoming it can do. I, uh, I think of my first ministry in Columbia, Missouri that I shared about. Went there alone, three students. Went on that campus. The three students, they, they were in sin up to their eyeballs. They didn't hardly come out to church. They were just students when I got there. I could share details, but you'd be shocked at what they were involved in. They weren't living the Christian life. I go out on the quad of that campus. The first day I'm there, Monday morning, school has started. The bell goes off. There literally was a bell. And in that quad, there were just thousands of students walking by me. And I was sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, what 
have I gotten myself in for here? Connie and I were supposed to be married in three months. She was going to come join me. I thought to myself, is she still going to love me if I quit the ministry? How am I going to tell her I can't do this? I was like Elijah, just totally overwhelmed. And you know what? Little by little, I pushed through that fear. And two and a half years later, when Connie and I left to go to the University of Florida to take over that campus ministry, we had over a hundred students that were part of the campus ministry at the University of Missouri. And I share those stories with you to say, you know, there comes a time in rock climbing, of which I used to do a lot of in my younger years, where you get at a point where you're maybe a hundred, 150 feet up on that ledge, and someone is belaying you at the top, and you're past the crux of the climb, you can't go down, it's too hard, it's too far. So the only way out is up, but you're on that ledge, and you're trying to find that next handhold, you can't see it, you can only feel, and there's nothing there. I've been in that position before, many times. And I can remember that there's a term in rock climbing, it's called bogarting. And bogarting is where you just freeze, and you think just waiting it out, something is going to change. You know, a, a tree's going to grow out there if you wait long enough, and you can grab onto it and then make your way up. But something's going to happen, but you, you just get frozen. And I can remember one climb in the Ozarks Mountains in Missouri where I was climbing, and the guy belaying at me at the top felt the slack in the rope and knew I'd been there for a long time, nothing was happening, and he yelled down at me, Stop bogarting! And he did that several times, and I realized I was going to have to make my commitment move. And that's where you just go for it, and you hope you grab something. Because it's, it, you're looking at pine trees that look like blades of grass down below, just to put it in perspective. And yet... It's amazing how frozen you can get at that moment when you are belayed in a rope and you know by grace you're not going to fall. Someone is going to be up there to catch you. You just have to make your commitment move. And I really want to leave you with that thought because I'm convinced that the longer I'm a Christian, we have times, key moments in our spiritual lives where we need to make our commitment move. And we need to stop bogarting. And I'll tell you, for the Dallas church and for the disciples in our region, hundreds of them, that was the San Antonio summit. And, and, and people now are putting it out there. And I told you what happened last Sunday. It is exciting to see when Christians get back to their first love and... Stop being encumbered in the world and start taking faith risk again in simple things like sharing their faith, what God can do. I wanted to leave you with an inspiring story as you think about your commitment move this morning. And I can't help but to think that as we imitate Jesus, 
What Jesus is really offering us is a chance to change the world. I thought you'd appreciate a good California story. Enough about those Texans, right? Steve Jobs is a whiz at marketing computers. But there was a time when he needed some help in marketing his incredible little magic box. He was in need of an expert who could help him take his Apple computers into the ring against IBM. They don't even make computers anymore. John Scully became the target of Steve Jobs' attention. Scully, at the age of 38, had been Pepsi-Cola's youngest president. He masterminded the Pepsi Generation ad campaign that dethroned Coke from the number one position for the first time in history. Steve Jobs knew it would take a lot to get Scully. He whined and dined him and made him numerous offers with money he did him in half. All to no avail. Scully was content in his present and secure success. Finally, in desperation, that's where good things often really happen, Steve Jobs threw out a question of exasperation. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugar water? Or do you want a chance to change the world. That's what I'm offering you. Scully would go on to tell us that it was that single piercing question which leveraged the greatest weight in his decision to leave his security at Pepsi and go to Apple for an opportunity to change the world. My question for us is, who is Jesus? Who is the real Jesus in your life? Oh, there's a lot of opinions about Jesus. But I'll tell you, the longer that I'm a disciple, the more I'm convinced. The ones that count in my life is that besides those important claims... My Jesus was an unencumbered man. And my Jesus is a risk-taking man. And I, by following and imitating that walk, too have a chance to make my life count and change the world.